This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Let Them All Talk. On December 10th, take a voyage with three legendary actresses, Academy Award winner Meryl Streep, Academy Award nominee Candace Bergen, and Academy Award winner Diane Weiss, as they come aboard a new HBO Max original film by Academy Award winning director Steven Soderbergh. Meryl Streep plays author Alice Hughes, who must reunite with her two lifelong friends to right wrongs from the past and have a bit of fun along the way. Let them all talk. Streaming on December 10th on HBO Max and Rated R. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. And Ann, we were all set to have a nice chat about Sundance, maybe share our top 10 lists, and then Mother F and Warner Brothers comes along and changes things up for everything next year and forces us to start with some fairly historic news, I suppose. Warner Brothers saying that literally every movie on their slate for 2021 is going to be day and date going straight to HBO Max. When I first saw this headline in a press release, I thought it was like an onion thing or something. I, I couldn't quite, because it, it sounds, you know, Dune and all these things we've been anticipating. I mean, what do we make of this? I was on a phone news? call earlier this morning before this was announced with with, with a distributor because we were talking about the, the year-end uh, schedules and what's going to happen. And and we he, he, he asked me to sort of uh, spitball what was going to happen. And I said this. <laughs> I said that it would be day and date. Uh, and it would be uh, a, a question of, of the studios and the chains having to come to terms with that. And, um, and I'm not joyful about it, but it does seem to be a one-year experiment that is specific to Warner Brothers because, or Warner Media, because they need help with HBO Max. And it's a sign of how much they're investing in that competitive streaming platform versus Netflix and, and Apple and everything else. So right. it's really about that. And it's for one year. So it's a hell of a one year experiment it. though. I mean, to, to spend a year doing that as we supposedly get some vaccines and there will be things opening and closing and so forth, it's going to be fascinating because each step of the way we'll get another installment on whether or not this work is working or not. It's not like the trolls world tour thing where it's sort of like, okay, maybe you can experiment with that kind of a movie. It's such a wide range of blockbusters and then smaller films. I mean, it's every one of these movies could have a different kind of theatrical life, but as a day and date, it's, it's not going to have that at all. Remember it's just the United States. Okay. So if you think about it, if, if, if the trends have been for a long time now that most of the theatrical box office is overseas, if you're getting 60% of your box office from overseas, they're still going to get that. And they're going to learn. They're going to figure out what the numbers actually are, which of these movies do perform, which of these movies. This is the kind of R&R that the whole industry has not been able to do because the theaters have been holding the studios hostage this entire time, refusing to have these experiments. So Except- now they will find out one way or the other. So if they find out that, that um, you know, it's the same model as, as Wonder Woman 1984, if they find out that it only makes this much because it's in, in, in a, you know, a day to date situation, they're, they're going to, but, but it's, it's beyond the pandemic. It's going to be after everything comes yeah. back that they're going to It, it seems likely. It seems to, you know, we don't know exactly how vaccines will be distributed in this country and, and all least, that good stuff. That's but the thing. They know. Assume. They've done the homework. 
work. They know that it's, you know, at least till summer, it's at least till summer. And it's, it's, you know, even people over 65 who, who, who have conditions, they don't even know when those people are going to get it much less someone like you. I think it's worth drawing a contrast here for our purposes to what the indie world has been doing with day and date for so long. Cause it's just so fascinating. This is huge news for the scale of the movies that are going to have this kind of release. You know, this past week, our uh, peer and, and Ariana Baca was just elevated to I, president. I, she's been doing this I, all they, along. Yeah. I mean, I remember when it was like, kind of an interesting experiment when they would do day and day, you know, right after a theatrical release or whatever. And those films did have lives in both theaters and VOD, a tiny, tiny fraction of what they need to do with something like a Wonder Woman or a Dune or whatever. But I do think that in some ways it is, it's on a continuum with that. If you hadn't had people innovating with that, you wouldn't even have the concept of day and day. And so it, it does feel like it was only a matter of time before something like this happened. The pandemic, again, just accelerated something that was inevitable. But it's interesting because you've got each of the studios is, is basically adopting a different model. You know, someone like Paramount or Sony, they don't have, I mean, Paramount is developing a streaming service, but they don't have it all online really yet. And Sony doesn't have one at all. And they've been selling things off. And then you, and then you have... Um, universal with the PVOD model that they care about so much. And they're the ones who made the deals with the distributors for, for the, for the different uh, windows. And then you have, um, they've, so they've had, they've had two diff- different ex- exhibition deals. Uh, and it's curious to see what, what the final one, one will look like. And, and then Warner's has this one and Disney has its own streaming uh, concepts. So we'll see, we'll see how it all shakes out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it has gone, the, the streaming war concept has become such a fragmented landscape this year. And not only because of the pandemic, because the companies all split off in all these fascinating directions. I mean, the Disney thing is interesting because it's like you've got film and TV all as part of one development division now. And it seems like, you know, Warner Brothers wouldn't mind heading in that direction eventually, too. But they need to figure well, out what they're, to do with they're the streamlining and they've thrown out a lot of executives. I mean, the, the there's been any I mean, never in the I have never seen this much wholesale change in the industry in my entire time covering it. And so you have way, you know, huge number of senior executives thrown out. You have diff, the both Warners and Disney have completely restructured so that so that things are being done in a very, very different way with streaming the dominant uh, focus and theatrical has been, you know, thrown into uh, and and movie making itself have been thrown into a secondary, very secondary position, not just because of the pandemic, but exacerbated by it. Yeah, I believe people will come back to theaters but we don't know how many theaters are going to be left. At you the and I will go back. You and I no, will go back to whatever will. theaters. But no, but it'll be a different kind of experience, you know, watching people slowly go back and, and which studios start to decide that theaters are where you, you really need to sort of count on your audience because clearly there's a large portion of the market share that is not interested in that. And that was already happening. So, you know, it's well, not Warner's is trying to build up the subscribers for HBO Max. And they think that by offering these commercial titles for the first time at, 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 at the uh, start of, of the cycle, the release cycle, the, exclusively for one month, you know, um, 
that then the theaters get to hang on to the movies as long as they want to. But one month is, you know, often the life of a movie. It's, it, you know, movies often don't last more than that anyway. Um, it's a, it's going to be really interesting to see how that, how that plays out. But it, 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 after a year, they can change it up and say, okay, we're going back to putting our blockbusters out in theaters and we're going to wait three weeks. They could do that. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff that they've announced today is ready to go. Right. So it's not so hard to kind of make that transition as opposed to, you know, going into production. And I, I wonder how it could affect the way they greenlight things. It's also worth looking at how this is being discussed at say Netflix and Amazon, uh, which, you know, where they haven't been producing their, their features for, uh, traditional theatrical releases. And what does that mean for competition in 2021? I mean, when you have when you have something that has a similar kind of release to a Netflix original going to HBO Max, but it's, you know, much bigger. I mean, I don't know how much subscribers are going to get for like the Zack Snyder Justice League cut. I mean, I'm sure it's, it'll be, it'll be some, but it won't necessarily save the service. But Wonder Woman, I'm sure they'll get a bump for. Dune, I'm sure they'll get a bump for. Absolutely. And maybe There's a hunger for that. Yeah. And, but I will go see Dune in a theater. Thank you very much. Yeah, assuming that you can. I mean, that's the open question, right? I mean, if, if, if it comes to HBO Max and it's still not safe to go to a theater, are you going to wait? No, you're going to watch it on HBO Max, but you'll still want to have that theatrical experience. I still want to so, see Mank in a theater. Sure, sure. You I still, still want to see, see Tenet in the theater. Yep, yep, all that stuff. It all still matters. Well, let's talk about Sundance then, because I think it is worth noting that something like 70 plus movies are going to be launched in January as virtual, you know, as, as at-home VOD-ish experiences, as opposed to in Sundance venues that would give them a different kind of platform. I mean, what did you make of... Uh, the details that came out this week. With well, we had learned discussion. some of this ahead of time, but, but I think they're handling it really well. And I think, I think it's, it's going to, it's going to create an event. That's the thing. It, you know, you need people to be talking. I like the idea that you go onto the platform and you get to hang out in the waiting room with other yeah, people. It's a little at the Eccles, you know, well, that's what I was talking to them is. about. Cause to me, it was the revelation of going to Sundance was the, the instant networking because you're waiting in line and people are wearing that's it hats. absolutely so, it's the lifeblood you know, of our industry to yeah, hot I, people <laughs> i think that you know very few entities could pull off what is attempted to being pulled off here so if anybody can make this work it is sundance which is this idea of asking audiences to commit to the rigorous structure through which you have to experience this festival press and industry and ticket buyers alike that you you have to watch the movie at a certain time or within a three hour window. Which you would you have had to do. Well, I mean, yeah. you do have three hours of wriggle. Well, we did a little bit of that at Toronto, um, and it was it was a challenge, you know, to to catch things right. inside the. Well, window. I think I think Toronto benefit. I mean, Sundance benefits from Toronto and New York and other Absolutely. festivals trying these things. It, and maybe they the use audience the same is learning. Uh, they use the same platform, but, but uh, the, here's what I'm, I'm curious about. So we're going to find out, I guess, in about a week, right? What the, what the uh, schedule yep. is. And we're going to look at that. You guys did, you know, uh, a, a wish list. wish list. And so there's a whole long list of movies that we would love to see there. And I'm going to be really curious because there's going to be movies that are not on that list, not because they didn't get in, but because they weren't submitted. Right. I've been hearing from some people who have not put their films in 
of, for Sundance because they still want to wait for some kind of event theatrical experience. So, but I have also spoken to distributors who submitted stuff and are waiting. Yeah, I mean, different films have different kinds of agendas. Even pre-pandemic, there were some films that, that didn't necessarily need a festival bump. And this is a different kind of festival experience. And it's so, a shorter list they had to come up with, 70 films is less than right usually. but it's proportion it's, it's proportional to how many films would be in there for in because there's a seven-day festival instead of an 11-day festival but it is also worth noting that you know you have it sounds like a lot of films that are looking for distribution and will probably need that platform at the festival if you have a film with distribution that would traditionally use the festival as a marketing launch it's not necessarily going to benefit in the same way it would it wouldn't, it's not, you know, a guaranteed sort of slam dunk in the same way. But if you have a film that needs to be sold, sitting on that movie and hoping a festival comes around so you can sell that movie, that's a trickier proposition. You might need to get it out because buyers are going to pay attention to these movies, whether or not they see them as Sundance virtual screenings or whatever. Well, the so. usual drill, which is that you're looking for talent, you're looking for things to pick up, you're, you're, you're looking for audience, re the audience reaction, that's going to be harder to gauge because you're not sitting in a theater and you're not getting the, the buzz, but you'll get some, you'll get some feedback. So TBD on that front, should we talk about a couple movies we have seen coming back to the HBO Max Warner Brothers of it all? One that I'm sure uh, is, is severely affected by this new strategy. Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk, a mostly improv heavy reminder that cruise ships can actually be kind of fun to be on sometimes. What did you make of it's this? So, uh, you know, I enjoyed the movie. I had a really good time uh, hanging out with those women, uh, Candy Bergen and, and Diane Weist and Meryl Streep. I'm not going to turn up my nose at them but uh, and and Lucas Hedges who was fantastic I think in the movie and 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 carried his his own weight but um I'm I'm coming or I'm 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 not entirely satisfied by the movie and I think that part of it it just feels sort of ephemeral even though I should be relating to it I should be completely uh transported uh, you know Meryl uh, as the uh uh, you seem like a, you're, you're a much happier person than the character that she I, played. I movie. was, <laughs> I was just, I was just really uh, uh, left, you know, unmoved, un, unchallenged. It's one of the lighter you know, of deeper. the lighter side. Yeah, I mean, Soderbergh can can dial up that light side, and this is like lighter than light. It's like it's like the the icing on the cake as opposed to the cake you know and what he i mean picked really smart women who are great actresses who can land on their feet but at the same time i don't think that this uh here's the story here's what we need you know here's where you're going by the end of the scene and then you improvise it it's extemporaneous i i don't think that ends up being nearly as satisfying and 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 uh, I, I, I'm not sure it's the right way to go. Well, it's individual moments, right? I mean, it's, it feels, it, it, it does not feel like 100% Soderbergh effort. It feels like Soderbergh was like, what can I pull off in a fairly, you know, easy man? I mean, he controls everything, right? He's shooting the thing. He's, he seems like he had it. He was in a wheelchair instead of a dolly, you know, like that kind of stuff and, and getting them to improvise. So it feels like a bigger movie because of the cast and, and the fact they shot it mostly on a cruise ship. 
but it's actually got a, a fairly small main cast and it's the story is very, very. So I think it's there's some, some value in that. Your, it's perfect for yeah. watching on TV in your living room. I mean, it's absolutely it delightful viewing. and charming. It's just, I'm in, I guess, all right. I'm in Oscar mode. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, no, in other words, it's not one of those. It, it's, it did it, not it just check doesn't that rise box. to that level. But uh, on the other hand, this weekend, over the holiday, like everyone on the planet, it seems, I watched Happiest Season with my daughter. Except and, me. And, <laughs> except you, Eric. What happened? How, why did you miss the boat? I feel so left out of the zeitgeist right now. I don't know what to tell you. I'll get to it. You're not the no, target audience. Make the case. Make the case. No, I mean, it's 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 a, I was yelling at the screen. I was like, don't ditch her. You know, it's, 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 it's basically the, 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 the couple go home for the holidays. Only in this case, they're a lesbian couple and Kristen Stewart is ready to propose marriage to Mackenzie Davis. And Mackenzie Davis tells her, um, if you want to come home with me, we're going to have to pretend you're my straight roommate. And she hasn't come out to her family yet. So that's okay. the drama. So, so why is this not my kind of movie? A lot of girls, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm certainly, I, I, I don't even know where to begin with that one. But I was going to say from a rom-com standpoint, you know, I, that genre going back to 30s and 40s has always appealed to me. And if somebody can resurrect that charm with a more sort of modern day approach to the kind of relationships that weren't represented in media back then, that would be great. Does it have any of that sparkling screwball comedy charm to it could press i would say that the script movie? is the weakest element and okay. that Kristen stewart proves herself as a really terrific actress because you hang on to her throughout and dan levy is also a high point uh, in the movie and well, um that's interesting i, I mean I, I case dude doesn't do comedy. i was rooting for all the out uh characters <laughs> and against all the straights you know i was well i i, I think Kristen stewart is is why i would want to watch i mean i've always found her to be a fascinating actress i haven't seen her do a lot of comedy so i'm curious to know how she works with i would that say she was her. playing it fairly quote unquote straight in in this case interesting um, yeah so she sort of so she, the con the tone is sort of built around well that, part of, i think one of the things that's really bad about it actually is is everyone's um in a different movie so someone like allison brie is is suddenly in a sitcom somewhere you know she's she's a sort of cartoon villain sister um so uh, it's all over the place um you want to talk about everybody being in a different movie why don't we talk about the prom <laughs> ah that's a good case a good example that uh, is a movie that's that is where all over the place serious miscasting occurred uh in the case of james corden i would say um, yeah, that's, as many I enjoyed the movie a lot. I, I think it's one of Ryan Murphy's best movies, actually, uh, <laughs> which may be a low bar. I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, wow, <laughs> put uh, that in a trailer. No, but it's play, it's based it's based on the musical that was on Broadway, which I happened to see, which was surprisingly yeah, good. Yeah. I loved it. Loved the musical. Um, Weirdly, and, I actually enjoyed this a little bit more i didn't i didn't think it was a great movie but i didn't think the play was particularly deep i think there's a fundamental flaw to what it's about this lip this uh, kind of jokiness about the the the, the satire of the liberal new yorkers trying to fix the rule whomever's you know or enlighten them but then it kind of does do that like it is condescending in a weird kind of, kind of way that, that that irks me and that's still in the material here but visually this is a 
there's some fun stuff to watch here. Oh, no, he knows how to do musicals, Ryan Murphy, and he does a great job. But again, James Corden is playing this older gay queenie uh, theater guy. I mean, we all recognize the prototype. Okay. And, and in the, in the play, it it was the guy who did it, did a great job. It's an older guy, maybe not as slim as he used to be. Andrew Rennells plays the younger version of this guy very well, perfectly well. Rennells is great. People have been saying he should be playing this part, but it's an older guy, but there's so many people who could have played this part better than James Corden. It, 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 it bothered me, too. I'm sure there's more of a story to that that perhaps we will learn with time. I mean, the guy is a talk show host, so perhaps he'll choose to address this. I mean, he is well, a musical there theater There was a TVQ guy, so. quotient, clearly. They, pay, they cast someone who knows how to sing and dance. You know, the theater guy. I mean, he is legitimate. It's just that he's, he's straight and he's not a good... He just doesn't fit this guy. And then you have Nicole Kidman, who's seems to be wearing pretty much the same costume the whole movie. And I couldn't figure out if they were cutting around her. There's something very hard to figure out about Nicole Kidman as a whole. And this thing that people will realize when they see it, it's sort of like, you can't totally see her singing a lot of times. And most of the well. attention. I liked her. And Meryl was, was great. Meryl was awesome. But most of the attention goes to Meryl for sure. Meryl is, I mean, it's always fun to watch her go for it, but it's funny talking about, this in the same week as let them all talk. I mean, those, those are like different universes of Meryl Streep. Totally. I mean, it's just one is a much more kind of restrained, you know, bitter, older naturalistic. Woman. Yeah. And here she's like seductive and she, her costume changes she's are never like all better. over the place. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's great. And her chemistry with Keegan Michael Key was a nice surprise. Fantastic. Too. That was Fantastic. fun to see. I, Here's the I thing. love the prom. I think it's a Golden Globes success, basically. But what does that even mean? Because there's already plenty of movies that'll be. I mean, does it does it dominate the Golden Globes, or does it oh, just I get a bunch of? It could. I mean, it'll get lots and lots and lots of nominations in uh, in the comedy musical category, and and it will be. Uh, it could it could win? You know, it could it could totally win. But it, I, you know, here this opens up an interesting question because how do you even do the usual HFPA sort of thing this season? You know, they a big part of that is just kind of getting in their face and, and, and making them happy. I mean, you can't do the stuff they well, could do. Doing, for the they're and they're doing the same. I mean, I don't know how many of these you've been part of, but I mean, they're, you know, you get invited to something to watch in a certain time frame online. And then there's a Q and a afterwards. And, and uh, you know, sometimes they send you swag to go with it. Um, if it's a premiere, um, believe me, the, the Hollywood foreign press are being well taken care of. As all no Oscars for this one. You don't see anything from Meryl, no movement there. All right. Well, then, one less movie we have to worry about in the months ahead since Meg's now out on Netflix. Nomad Land is qualifying. So, <laughs> the prom is super entertaining. And I think it will be a huge hit on Netflix. It'll be huge for hopefully Netflix. Hopefully, what their goal is. That's it's a, it's a good win for. I mean, I, I really respect what Netflix is doing uh, with these theatrical adaptations the idea of especially right now i mean they couldn't have known exactly how it would play out right now but you can't go to broadway shows and there's broadway stuff like Boys there's a hunger or whatever yeah i think that's really effective so should and we I do top ma 10 rainy ma rainy's gonna do really well too it's it's another yeah, wow, yeah it's, it's fun it's fun adaptation. all right top 10 let's do our top 10s okay all right so we're gonna go backwards 
and uh, well, anything you want to say before we start, because as readers of the site know, I already went public with mine. You, but yes, if you some seen people may yet, not have read your <laughs> you top don't have 20, to, Eric. But I will just point out, yeah, it, it is a top discipline. 20. Lacks discipline. No, it gets a little bit longer every year, and I still can't fit enough stuff onto it. Now, so. I had a tough time, too, and I cheated in a way. You'll see. I, I What I did is I have a top 10, but there were three movies that I really wanted to put on it that I decided to create different categories for um so i can should i should i say what those are different it, the runners up you mean yeah yeah best animated well. film is pixar's soul from pete doctor best documentary is Naturno from gianfranco rossi and best foreign language film is another round from Thomas Winterberg and Mads Mikkelsen. Nice. Although I have to say, you you, you have your own rules for these because uh, Naturno, unless I've heard otherwise, isn't opening before the end of 2020, is it? Is that a, does that does that count? Ah. Or are you using point. are you using Oscar rules? Oscar <laughs> rules. Top sure. Oscar whatever. Rules. You heard it here first. All right. So let's. So why don't you start with number ten? And then I'll give my 10 and we'll just go from there. My number 10 is I'm Thinking of Ending Things from Charlie Kaufman, which is uh, a Netflix movie uh, that charmed me, uh, challenged me intellectually in terms of this extraordinary structure. Um, yeah, I loved Jesse Buckley. Uh, I, I loved Clemens. Uh, I love the way that the characters are constantly changing the time frame, and you don't know where they are and you don't know what's really going on. And I had more conversations after the movie, debating it, figuring it out, unraveling it. And I just think it's one of Kaufman's best. I hope he gets an Oscar nomination for it because I think it's one of the great screenplays of the year, but he also directed it really beautifully. Yeah, I, uh, so I this was on my runner up. I couldn't get it in, even into my top 20 with so many other films that I, I felt very strongly about, but it, but it has been so, such a blast to puzzle over this thing and, and pull it apart. So it makes sense that you would put it in there. My number 10 is another very peculiar film that, premiered on the festival circuit last year and finally came out. Uh, its theatrical release was interrupted by the pandemic and it was one of the first virtual cinema releases through Kino and that's Bacurau, the uh, Brazilian film from Clever Mendoza Fijo, which I thought was just such a cool, wild, like John Ford meets John Carpenter, wet, bloody Western in the desert, neo-futurist craziness, you know, with this small remote village kind of coming together to fight off these criminals who are hired to kill them by the government more or less, which isn't really a spoiler because the movie is kind of wild and unpredictable in so many ways that you might not get that on the first viewing. The second time I watched it, I realized what a complex indictment of uh, colonialism it is in a way that felt so timely. And, um, and Udo Kier is just such a cool villain. There's so many innovative things about this movie. So I hope people check it out. I That's saw it at, at Cannes a year ago and uh, really loved it. Um, and uh, it feels old. It feels in the rear view. I completely forgot that it opened this year. It counts. Yeah. All right. Uh, my number nine is Farewell Amour from a first-time feature filmmaker who describes herself as Tanzanian, Ekwa Masangi. And the reason I say that is that the story itself is about um, Angola uh, immigrants and it's 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 an incredible family drama about a guy who has uh, been separated from his family and he lives in Brooklyn and after like 
incredible amount of time, 17 years, his, his, his daughter, who's grown up without him and his, his wife show up and he has to try to create uh, a life with them. And there are amazing conflicts and, and reveals. And it's one, it's really well written, well directed, well acted, tight, unexpected, unpredictable and moving and charming. And it's just one of the best movies I saw all year. And I saw this movie at Sundance. A new talent. Yeah, she's talented. It's a very sweet film. Well, my my number nine film also deals with an immigrant experience, and that's Borat's subsequent movie film. (laughs) Surprise, everybody! (laughs) Happens to be a fake immigrant, but well, great. Hey, this was number one on on A.O. Scott's list just this past week. Pretty significant to see that. I'm not alone in this kind of championing this movie. I mean, look, I was primed to be excited about this thing. I think Sasha Baron Cohen is a great performance artist and the way that he does this kind of subversive means of pushing people to reveal their biases on a mainstream level, reaching a mass audience is just unparalleled. And the fact that he did it in the middle of an election year, it contributed to the news cycle with the whole Giuliani thing, but also was able to capture what America was going through with the pandemic and introduce an amazing new talent, Maria Bakalova, who is somehow able to do exactly the same kind of artwork that he does with people, even though she'd never done it before. There's so many things that are so accomplished about this film. It, to me, takes the idea of the hidden camera prank storytelling to a whole nother level I've never seen before. So really impressed. And I hope that the people haven't gotten into it because they don't, they don't like his stuff or whatever, they'll give it a shot because I really feel like this is the best thing he's done. Uh, it's a wonderful movie and I got a great kick out of it and there certainly isn't anything else quite like it. No question True. about it. I'm curious because you interviewed uh, Bakalova. What did you learn about why she was able to do this? Well, I, a, a lot. And it took some some probing because, you know, frankly, everybody involved in these things is sworn to silence 50 times over and NDAs and all that stuff. But my sense was that this was a woman who, you know, last year graduated from theater school in Sofia, Bulgaria, and was, uh, you know, one of the things that, that it seemed like she had been sort of trained to do was uh, learn how to perform on stage in a way that uh, w- sort of caught the audience off guard that the, the sort of the theater tradition she was trained on were playing off of kind of the, the audience's subconscious investment in your characters. And I think that to some degree, that's what, um, that's what she does in, in the mood in, in Bora. It's, it's, it's a kind of performance that is kind of doing things to your, your victim in a way that they don't realize. And so there's a a fundamental relationship there that seems to be based in in her theater training, but also just being a theater actress is relevant because if you screw up on stage, everybody notices. If you screw up in this situation, it affects the scene. So there's a lot that I think is is sort of baked into this performance. So she's strong on her. She's strong on her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So uh, my number eight is Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock. And uh, I, I have to say, uh, you and I talked about this. Uh, there's no question this is a movie. Uh, it's one of the best cinema. movies of the year. And it's, uh, it is, it's cinema. And it, it, it is ecstatic cinema. But it's also extraordinarily precisely choreographed at the same time that you feel like it's entirely improvised. 
And how he did that with his camera people, how he managed to take this young woman and put her into this huge party and choreograph an arc of, of, of growing inebriation, uh, changing dynamics between the sexes, attraction, repulsion, anger, uh, all of it is so brilliant and where it ends up it's it's one of it's one of the best things i've seen all year no question yeah totally really smart move by new york film festival i think to make this the opening night I mean, we knew it might have been at Cannes. we'll never know exactly what that you know would it have won the palm d'Or? we don't know but in 68 minutes man what a movie my uh my next film on my list is uh also something that completely caught me by surprise back at sundance and that's the mole agent which is the Chilean Oscar submission I've talked about before. This uh, really amazing documentary. I think it feels like a documentary narrative hybrid, but it really is a documentary from this filmmaker, Maite Alberti, where she follows a, a private eye who sends an elderly man into a retirement home to investigate whether or not somebody living there is, is stealing. And then, you know, basically the guy just kind of befriends everyone and, and gets this new appreciation for life in a really wonderful way. And um, it's just a, it's just an extraordinary piece of filmmaking because it starts off seeming kind of like a cheesy noir spoof. And then it becomes something much more profound and, and meaningful. And I just love stuff like that, that where, where you think you're one step ahead of this movie and then it completely catches you off guard. So people should look up this film. It's just great. I have to say that I was I was really uh, aware as I was putting this list together of how many great documentaries there are. Uh, you could do an a great year for it, yeah, amazing documentaries, and and you could also uh, this year for the first time I think perhaps you could do an entire top ten list with women directors. You could do an entire top ten list with directors of color. And uh, you could leave white people out altogether and you'd be fine. Uh, it's interesting. Um, you, you might not even have to try that hard. or think <laughs> No, <about it. laughs> you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Uh, so my number seven is, uh, of, uh, is American Utopia, which you could think of it as a David Byrne movie or a Spike Lee movie. But obviously it's a collaboration uh, as Spike adapts for the screen. Uh, a, a theater uh, performance and it boy did that work out um, I've seen it twice I would happily watch it again I've seen it prone I've seen it standing up I have danced I have uh, but it is also a provocative intellectual argument uh, you know combined with the great great music of David yeah. and talking we needed this thing in 2020 I mean I, I was gonna go see it on Broadway because he was bringing it back and couldn't get you know obviously that Broadway shut down they say they're bringing it back next year so I'm looking forward to seeing whatever you know refurbished version of it it is but it's really remarkable what he's created and the way that Spike captures it I mean you feel like you're there but also like you're inside it in a really cool way so it's a good choice my, my next one is the climb which I know you also <laughs> like that's a fun one it's nice to have comedy on this list I mean you know, I don't I'm not doing it just because I want comedy there's some really great comedies this one being a, a buddy movie which is a mold we've seen before and yet the way it does it you know cinematically from that first shot where this guy tells the other guy he slept with his fiance on a bike going uphill 
you know, timing so it so that he's at the top <laughs> and the other exactly. guy can't catch up with him. And that's just the start of it. That was the short film, just was sort of that bit. But then it just it it, it does these amazing elliptical things where it, it moves to different time periods in their lives. There's these surprising uh, song and dance numbers, and just it keeps evolving in a really great way. And it just made me appreciate a study of masculinity that knows what it's doing. It doesn't do cheap laughs just to kind of get away with it. And it's just such a great debut. I mean, from those, those two guys. These guys are great writers, great actors. Uh, Michelangelo Cavino is a great director and they have a very exciting career ahead of them. I, uh, as we've said, I I got to meet them on the circuit and they're just adorable. And I, I I can't wait to see what else comes from them. Um, all right, so my number six is Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. And that's Eliza Hittman's movie that broke at Sundance. We have a lot of Sundance movies. We could do a whole top 10 of Sundance debuts. True, true. Um, it was and, a good year. Uh, so I, I ended up uh, talking with her at uh, Berlin where she where she won a prize, a big prize. And and I, I, I just think this is an extraordinary script um, with extraordinary young women uh, d- making their uh, feature film debuts. Um, Sydney Flanagan is a musician. She did an incredible job as this girl who's trying to find an abortion. Uh, she can't get one in her hometown. She can't um, tell her parents. She takes her cousin with her on the train and they go off to New York City. They're vulnerable. They're under duress. They can't get it easily. It's a hard movie to experience and a beautiful one. Uh, I really admire it. Well put. And and I you know I have to say it's uh it's a filmmaker who has been building to a movie like this. It's really gratifying to see when that happens where you see the potential that's there and then it just kind of crystallizes. Well the next movie on my list is also a Sundance highlight and that's Time, a movie that I feel like I haven't talked about enough this year. I revisited it recently and it really illuminated the strength of Garrett Bradley's filmmaking. I mean to Again, it's it, it doesn't just feel like a documentary. It feels like pure cinema. The way she shot it in black and white and uses these delicate zooms and blends archival with uh, contemporary footage, but never, you know, feels like she needs to kind of explain or over-explain anything to us about this woman who has been spending two decades raising a family while her husband's in jail and and fighting to change a system that puts black men behind bars for far longer than you know whatever the crime is the uh, merits and and kind of just destroys lives and the way in which they fight through that it the material makes a case for its own existence you don't need to be told why why this is important you just live with these people for almost 90 minutes and and it just it's this beautiful emotionally gratifying experience so what an, another great debut i mean really just one for the ages it's extraordinary and and the true story of how she started out making a short and um, uh, uh, focused on, on, on Fox Rich. And then uh, at the very last minute gets delivered uh, this extraordinary trove of archive footage that turned this into a feature. It's just, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, the signature image of the two of them in a car kissing, you know, it's like from before he goes to jail, that's like the, the image of the movie. But because the whole thing is shot in black and white, it doesn't look 
I mean, it is grainy, but it doesn't look like archival. It looks consistent with the world that she's built. Which it looks like, so, you know, she made home movies, you know, but but the director made the decision to do the whole thing in black and white, which is her signature. I, it's, it's extraordinary. And I can't wait to see what else um, she has coming up. Uh, all right. My number five is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. George C. Wolfe and an incredible team of actors get together and recreate uh, August Wilson's uh, Chicago uh, 20s play. And um, there are uh, a lot of scenes where all the men are together, the men who are in the band who are practicing before uh, Viola Davis as Ma Rainey uh, shows up. Uh, Chadwick Boseman is extraordinary in this explosive uh there's a one scene that just gets him the oscar i i'm predicting that he will win it's just the way it is it, you cannot deny the the narrative of this extraordinary man whose life was cut too short who gives this a, a, a incredible performance uh knowing that he was sick having not shared that information with his uh his co-stars. And, and so there's just a, a sense in this movie that everyone involved in it uh, from producer Denzel Washington, who sold the, the whole canon of, of 10 uh, century play uh, plays to um, Netflix. And he's producing them one at a time. Fences was, was the first play. Um, and now you have, uh, and so he's reunited with Viola, who gives a great performance as this big woman, and 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 doesn't do her own singing, but she'll she'll get nominated anyway. Um, all of it, they're all giving their best. They're they're elevating. They're they're all in service of the material. It's not about ego, and it's about giving their best. And I don't think any of them has done better work that I'm aware of. Well, I, I did come out of this movie wanting to see Viola Davis just play this character. You know, I would I would go see her perform as this character <laughs> or play this character in an, a different kind of movie. I mean, it was just like the, the ferocity she brings to every moment. It was like they was on another level. My next one we've already talked about is never rarely, sometimes, always. But one thing I would just add is, uh, again, this is a movie that had its release kind of screwed by the pandemic. That's it was true. Released fairly early in the year by Focus after Sundance in Berlin and uh it, check it, it out is everybody a, it is a movie that like I don't know if that really just you know would it have benefited from being on this summer probably not because it would have been straight to VOD anyway but it, it's just people are not interested in, in a in a sad drama about abortion obviously it's not just that to me it's like a great survival story agreed that teaches you something I mean I didn't know what this kind of experience would be like for a teenage girl obviously so i learned stuff from it but it was gripping at the same time so what's next for you i've got um one night in miami regina king's uh directorial debut um kemp powers adapting his own play and uh, a real story that happened uh then you know in in 1964 when um Cassius Clay has just won uh, the heavyweight championship of the world and goes to a Miami hotel and hangs out with his buds who happen to be uh, football player Jim Brown, uh, the great uh, Sam Cooke, and non-pari uh, Malcolm X. So these guys engage in the most extraordinary uh, conversation over the course of this movie. And many of it, much of it is in inside a, a hotel room. And anyone can tell you um, that could be uh, good theater can, can make for bad movie. But in this case, I think Regina King, again, 
of everybody taking this very seriously uh, at the top of their game, uh, exploring um, subjects that, uh, you know, were very provocative for me. And how are they going to use their, their stardom uh, to, to change the conversation in the South at the time. And, and that's what uh, I was, I was riveted by the movie. This is one of those movies that um, stays with you and that I keep thinking about and that just keeps resonating inside me. It hasn't gone away. And uh, that's unusual. A lot of theater in. A lot of theater I know. I'm a theater buff, obviously. <laughs> Which is fine. Uh, I uh, the next movie on my list could certainly not work on the stage, and that's Nomadland, which uh, happens to be as as we're recording this week, getting its sort of qualifying thing. So if you live in New York and want to watch it virtually, I mean, it's it would be best on the big screen, but it, it's a, it's a great movie one way or another. And what what I really dug about Nomadland, I mean, I obviously expected to this movie would be quite strong. Chloe Zhao being such a fascinating director and, and knocked it out of the park with the writer. But what's cool about it is how it sneaks up on you. Like you kind of keep waiting for something bigger to happen and it isn't that movie. And yet somehow it, it doesn't need to be because it's so well rooted in uh, Francis McDormand's character's view of the world and, and how that's sort of tied to this ever-changing landscape around her. And I just thought that was a really incredible kind of poetic way of exploring America, especially in 2020. I cannot, um, I cannot uh, speak more highly uh, of this movie. Um, uh, and it's on my list um, as well. So I will move on to the next thing, um, which is uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven. Aaron Sorkin, writer, director, uh, uh, worked on this for 10 years. Uh, it's one of the films I've seen twice because I enjoyed it so much. It's just, uh, you know, maybe it's my generation. I grew up with this uh, 1968 was something I remember. Uh, when when the uh, riots occurred outside of the Democratic Convention and the subsequent trial, I actually went to a concert and saw Abby Hoffman perform. Um, I think uh, Sasha Baron Cohen gives an amazing performance. Um, and so does everyone else. Everybody. Jeremy Strong <laughs> is hilarious as Jerry He's very Rubin. Funny. Uh, yeah. Frank Langella is horrifying as Judge Hoffman. Uh, um, Yaya uh, Abdul Mateen II is extraordinary as Bobby Seale. Uh, and I could go on. So um, I just think that Sorkin, uh, who didn't do that great a job with his first movie, um, really delivers with this one uh, he learned and uh i couldn't admire it more well it's certainly a, a movie that uh i admire what, what it's setting out to do which is to make very clear uh the the validity of these people in fighting for change despite a system that was designed to screw them over and there's some really good scenes where they kind of talk about the inevitability of all that the next film on my list i think is very much tied to that as well and that's collective a movie that, you know, makes you think, well, if you think your democracy has problems, look <laughs> at Romania. And I don't mean to be glib either, but man. No, no, no. It's very <laughs> horrifying. It's, it's corrupt is what it's, it is. It's, it's terrifying. Even the health but, system is corrupt. But I, I mean, you're watching the first half of the movie, you're watching these, these muckraking Romanian journalists who are at a sports rag uncover, you know, the, the, the kind of systematic corruption that allowed for the dilution of uh, cleansing formulas and caused all these people from a fire to die. And then it switches to this 
guy who's in charge of the health ministry who's supposed to fix the system and this it's he can't make any he, he's just trapped and and you just see from every angle there when, when corruption ends up getting its talents into society as a whole it's very hard to take back charge of it watching this movie before the election here in the U.S. and after were very different experiences. I was relieved that in our case, uh, it seems like we ought, we have a little bit more going on in terms of the ability to change the system, but it's also an ongoing struggle and you never know when things are going to change. So it's an incredibly eye-opening piece of filmmaking in that respect. But the pandemic is, uh, I talked to the filmmaker, Alexandra Nanao, who's really good. And I love this. I wrote about this early in the year and, um, you know, the pandemic in Romania was no pretty picture, as you can imagine, I'm and sure nor not. has it been here. Um, so it's a real a cautionary warning uh, movie. I, I hope everybody looks at it. Um, uh, my number two is The Five Bloods from Spike Lee, which means there's two of them, two Spike Lee movies on my nice. list. And I don't care. I, I love this guy. Uh, he is never boring. And this movie has... Um, at which he which he wrote with with his usual collaborator uh, Kevin Wilmot. It is it is really um, a tough examination of a group of guys going back to Vietnam, uh, very damaged, very angry. Uh, they were veterans, and uh, they're they're digging lost treasure. And Chadwick Boseman is in flashback as the guy that they lost. Uh, one of their comrades. And, and so it juggles around in a very complicated way uh, with time and the present and the past and, uh, you know, who they were then and who they are now. And the and this generations, Jonathan Majors is in it uh, playing um, uh, Delroy Lindo's son. Delroy Lindo gives a huge performance. I hope he gets nominated. I'm worried that this movie came out early in the year and that a lot of people who may have seen it may have forgotten it. Um, I think it's they one should of the best campaign movies. for him. I would yeah. love to hear from the Delroy Lindo character now the Trump supporting but you know that that persona in the movie is so it's so right. strange and provocative and yet also timestamps it as earlier in 2020. So well, it's almost like you want to hear what does he have to say for himself now? You know, where does that leave he, him? He's a damaged and angry and powerful masculine figure. You know, he's he, sure, he represents it, it a, a whole lot of people, I think. Go ahead. So my number two is Lover's Rock, which is, uh, you know, you spoke about already, but you didn't mention Silly Games. And Silly Games is the scene of the year. I mean, when that song plays on the dance floor and then keeps going for another five minutes when the music stops, only a filmmaker like Steve McQueen could get away with just doing that, like just letting it run. I mean, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, is something wrong? Did I, am I, did I fall asleep? Like as it's, it just transcend, you just wind up in this totally different plane than where you thought you were. And then you just kind of stay there for the rest of the movie. That's just an amazing piece of filmmaking. And I love that we're having these conversations about is it TV or is it film? Because cinema as an art form doesn't, belong in either of those categories it's just you know a visual medium it's, it's it's audio it's imagery and what he does with those powers to tell the story of this teenage girl at this particular moment of time 
It does tie into some of the other small axe ones thematically, but it also completely stands on its own. And it's just such such a masterwork. So I can't see that thing. I can't, I can't wait to see this one a second time. Uh, all right, we're up to my number one, Big which number is one. Nomadland. Surprise. Ooh, okay. So, so what uh, else can you add? <laughs> Nomadland just um, because it, it, Chloe Zhao wrote and directed this thing, but it is uh, Florence uh, uh, Francis McDormand came to her. Uh, you know, they were adapting a book actually, but in it, this is so not adapting a book. This is taking the idea of a book and some of the characters in a book and throwing it into reality, throwing it into the real world um, of these of these nomadic. Uh, caravans and camps and and capturing the zeitgeist in this extraordinary way it's very moving it's about people who have been marginalized and and who have, who who don't have uh, money at all and and are trying to survive almost um you know homeless people on the road and and it's very moving and what francis mcdormand does with this is extraordinary i also am inter was interested in my own uh, there's a romantic interest in the movie played by one of the few other professional actors, uh, David Strathairn. And I was fascinated by the degree to which I was rooting for uh, our leading lady not to get together with him, <laughs> which I yeah. found interesting. Um, yeah, he's a nice guy. Out. He's a nice guy. But yeah, I, I totally see where you're coming from on that. Well, my number one is a film that I've been a big fan of throughout the year that again, got interrupted by the pandemic and yet on some level feels spiritually attuned to it. And that's First Cow, a movie that uh, I think on some level it sort of is a consolidation of all of Kelly Reichert's films into one. It's it's old joy in, in the Oregon uh, territory as, as I originally put it. And and I stick with that. What, what an incredibly complex uh epic in, in intimacy. I mean, the, the idea of these two men in the late 19th century, just roaming an, an open, unsettled America, finding each other and deciding to steal milk from a cow to make, uh, you know, uh, biscuits. muffins, biscuits. And, and, and at once, be, you know, it's like a heist movie, but it's also a buddy movie. And it's about, you know, opportunity, but it's also about solitude and just the, the way every every time I look at this movie it, I find new layers of it that I think are incredibly profound and, and it's adapted from this John Raymond book but it feels very cinematic to me too in terms of the way that it's structured there are there are moments where you a, a lesser filmmaker would add some extra scenes to explain to you what happened this movie just kind of throws you into it. And I love that because it, it forces you to continually think about it and it stays with you. And and the performances are great. The setting is, is, is extraordinary. And and if you're not a Kelly Reichert fan yet, I'm gonna keep trying. I'm gonna keep pushing you. No, I've been I've been a Kelly Reichert fan all along. I like her westerns uh, very much. Meeks Cutoff is a good one. And there's uh, a little I, bit of a western here too. I liked Wendy and Lucy a lot. You know, so okay. sometimes I'm in, sometimes I'm out. She's she 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 you know she she grabs me now and then. This one's fine. Uh, I, I love I liked the movie very much. Um, it didn't grab me though. Well, that's okay. We'll keep talking about it because we've got plenty of stuff around the corner. In the next few weeks, New York Film Critics Circle is going to vote. Other critics groups are going to vote. We've got the end of the year and then the Sundance lineup, which will pitch into uh, 
2021. So even though just a few weeks are left, I feel like we've still got a lot to talk about before we uh, wrap up the year. It's kind of wild, actually. Never a dull moment. Indeed not. So I'll see you next week and we'll see what other news breaks before then. But have a great weekend. You too, Eric.